From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're focusing on America's current reckoning with its long history of social and economic racial inequality. The economic gaps between Black and white Americans are stark and in many cases haven't improved in decades. Black Americans on average experience higher levels of unemployment, earn lower wages, and accumulate less wealth than white Americans. At this pivotal moment of loud and clear rejection of this unacceptable status quo, the question of how to close the large and persistent income and wealth gaps between Black and white Americans is not just top of mind, but one of the most pressing questions of our time with enormous implications for our economic future and the future of America more broadly. To understand what we really mean by the term income gap, and its size and evolution over time, we first turn to Kerwin Charles, Dean and Professor at the Yale School of Management. To set things up, it's very important we keep certain terminologies clear that income consists of flows the person receives over some point in time, say over a year. And income can be of two sources. It can be earned, we call earnings, or unearned income, say the receipts one gets from dividend payments. Wealth is the sum total of all we own minus all we owe. Much of what we know about the income gap is in fact limited to a slice of income, earnings or wages or something like that. The income we receive, the flows we receive by virtue of selling our labor. For most people, earnings is a really good summary measure of income. Now, how big is the gap? The typical black man, the median black man, had roughly half. There was a 100% difference in income in 1940. Right after the war, that you want to take that as a starting point. That gap has ebbed and flowed. It has closed and rewidened. So that today, among all men, it was 68%. That's massive. Okay? And that is a gap that had closed earlier in the century to 50%. And it has rewidened now to a 68% differential. What's driven the narrowing and then the rewidening? We can disaggregate various explanatory factors into two sets of conditions, of forces. One kind of force is a force that shifts the overall shape of the earnings distribution. I want you to imagine an accordion. Yeah? There are some forces that take the American accordion and squeeze it inwards. Yeah? Those forces that squeeze the American accordion inwards necessarily lower income gaps or earnings gaps among all Americans or between groups of Americans, do you see? There are other forces which say leave the shape or squeezing in of the accordion the same but move blacks from the left side of the accordion, low earnings, upwards towards the right side. Do you see? One example of the first kind of force would be the overall widening of earnings inequality. Irrespective of race, the American earnings gap has widened. 
And so if we look just as whites, for example, you compare a white person who graduated high school in 1990, that class, to whites who graduated in 1970, that class of person, to whites who graduated in 1950, just among those persons, the gap between the bottom and the top keeps growing. Indeed, the gap between the 95th and the top keeps growing. Indeed, the gap between the 99th and the top, do you see? Now, those are forces that are occurring irrespective of race. That is the accordion thing. Yeah? That force, it turns out, has had a huge effect on the widening and the closing of the racial earnings gap. This force, the relative importance of that force, the widening and closing, versus forces that are what I call in some of my work race-specific, meaning forces that were the product of policies intended to redress racial inequity. Such a force could be an end to racial discrimination in magazines or in law firms. That thing is intended to move African-Americans up in the earnings distribution. Yes? That's different from the minimum wage which applies to everybody, irrespective of race, who earns low income. Overwhelmingly, the more important force at the median has been the former force, what we call distributional factors that apply to the overall shape of the earnings distribution. Mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly, the more important. That is not to say that there was not a very important role for race-specific changes. Because indeed, in the absence of race-specific changes, improvements, some of the widening we have seen over the last 40 years would have been even worse. But Charles explains there are different ways to put the income gap into perspective. In addition to the earnings level gap discussed, there's the earnings rank gap, where in the earnings distribution a black man would rank if he were white. And one of Charles's most striking findings is that this earnings rank gap has barely moved in 70 plus years, leaving an average black man relatively no better off than his grandfather. Here's more from Charles on that. Imagine we took a black guy of any arbitrary income level or earnings level. Let's ask where he would rank if he were white. We know he will not rank at the median because whites have higher income. How far below the median would he rank yeah? in the white distribution in this hypothetical thought experiment? If there's a result that over my career has floored me, that at the median, where the median black person would rank in the white earnings distribution has not improved for 70 years. A man today who's 30 ranks in the overall white earnings distribution where his father would rank. I'll go further. Where his grandfather would rank. Yeah, in exactly the same place, roughly. Indeed, there were periods where his father did worse than his grandfather by this measure. Yeah. And so thought of that way, we see that, look, a different way to think about how people are doing relative to each other is not just the dollar gap between them, yeah? But this thing to say, if I were you, if I looked like you, where would I be? While the picture looks bleak at the median, Charles says the income gap looks moderately better for top earners, even if it's still wide. 
and that largely owes to race-specific policies that have disproportionately benefited Black men at the top of the income distribution. At the top of the earnings distribution, the earnings gap is actually smaller than at the median. Remember I said there's a 68% gap at the median? At the 90th percentile, it's 48%. That's much smaller, but that's still big. And for the 90th, we have seen, as we saw at the median, some closing up until 1970, and then some rewidening after 1970. Interestingly, the rewidening we have observed since 1970 is smaller than the rewidening observed at the median. Yeah? And so things got better for the high-end blacks on average and then have gotten slowly worse over time. Now, it turns out that whereas at the median, the shape of the overall earnings distribution, this accordion-like thing I mentioned, was the driving force, at the top of the earnings distribution, by far the more important thing seems to have been race-specific advance and retreat. So what is that race-specific advance or retreat? We don't know, there are many things, there are many things, that's the point. But here's some candidate examples. After 1970, the United States of America opened up opportunities to African-Americans never previously available. The country's professions have opened up dramatically at the top end. Similarly, education at the top end has opened up dramatically too. The growth of what is called affirmative action and related policies means that at the nation's elite universities and semi-elite, there over 1970 to 1990s or so, a tremendous increase in the number of African-American faces in classrooms and on campus. Policies like that have had the effect of dramatically improving the condition of African-Americans at the top. Notice, though, I'm not saying they're anywhere close to parity. Why the rewidening at the top? That is the result of the surging economic inequality at the top end of your earnings distribution. The 99th guy is running away from the 98th guy. Yeah? And the two of them together are running away from the 95th guy. And the closer you are to the top, we observe not only expansion or widening, but widening that is accelerated the higher up we go. By contrast, we have seen really impressive convergence in rank at the top. And so if one looks at black men who are college graduates and asks, Where would the 90th percentile such man, the 90th percentile of black men who graduated college, look at his earnings today, where would his earnings place him in the distribution of whites who are college graduates today? You see, he would be not in the 90th, because we never had that kind of parity, but he'd be the 80-something, which is really shocking, and really that is to be praised. When it comes to the gap between the median and the bottom, Charles explains why the increasing prevalence of Black men who aren't working at all is key to understanding that measure of inequality. Because the incidence of non-work, the share of men not working, is rising among all men, it means that the gap between the median and the bottom is growing too. 
Because the bottom increasingly is not, quote, low wage, it's no work among men. And so the gap between the middle and the bottom is really growing. Well, you might ask what are the sources. One source is among all men in the country would be institutionalization. Incarceration being the most prominent example of that. Yeah? Then there's unemployment. These are people who are looking for work unsuccessfully. And then there is a growing faction of men who are not in the labor force, meaning they're not working and are not looking. When I say non-work, I use all three collectively. You see, the growth in this thing is in some ways the most fundamental change in men's outcomes in the United States in the last many, many decades, in my view. But is that increasingly the case for black men, though? Non-work is at historically unprecedented levels for all men, but it is at levels not only historically unprecedented, but nearly unimaginable for black men. 30% of prime age black men today are not working. And so we see the surging unemployment and it is growing differentially by race. And so looking just at workers is deeply misleading because it's missing those guys. And when one takes account of those guys, you see that income gaps are worse than we would have originally thought. So what would be the most effective policy solution to help overcome these adverse economic trends? First and foremost, Charles says, the key is education policy targeted at Black Americans, in particular, college education. The key thing I'm stressing is college-level training. And closing the gap there is an issue of pressing national concern. The country did a great job at eradicating the high school graduation gap. It was massive in 1950. It is essentially, if one includes the GED, essentially vanished today. Okay? But you know what happened? The labor market doesn't reward high school graduation. Today, college doesn't only give you a higher wage compared to your high school graduate friend when you do work. It raises the likelihood that you work in the first place. Yes. Yes. That is a big change in the American labor market. Men, college or no college, work yeah. for, you know, I don't know, God knows how many years. Yeah. Today, men who are not college graduates are increasingly unlikely to work relative to their college peers. We've got to close the gap where the labor market cares about it. The labor market cares about college level training. That's task one. Task two is that lots of activities or lots of wealth-generating behaviors that African-Americans might undertake face a liquidity challenge. A liquidity challenge might show up in terms of housing down payment, thinking about ways to relax the liquidity constraint for business ownership, for investment activity, for home ownership, and importantly, for migration is important. Third, there is a thing about downsides. So a striking thing when one looks at the African-American experience is the timing of the move. The timing, just as blacks are doing something and they get up to, okay, we're above water, some national force, not necessarily race national force, but a national force arrives to devastate the achievement. Here are some examples. Black Americans leave the South and move to the cities of the North and the Midwest in massive numbers, hundreds of thousands. Your Clevelands, your Detroit, Chicago. And having settled and unpacked, 
and taken jobs in the steel industry or in meatpacking or in light manufacturing around those cities, what then happened? Shortly after their move, there is sectoral reallocation. So manufacturing collapses shortly after they move. African Americans close the education gap, whereas there used to be a four and a half year education gap in 1960, where the median black person had a fifth, sixth grade education. This is an amazing thing. They went from that to closing the high school graduation gap. But as we know, just as they did that, high school graduation doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, timing again. There's the housing boom. African Americans own homes and buy homes in large numbers in the go-go years of the housing market. You know what happened, yeah? Just at the peak of the boom, when in black suburbs around the country, people were leaning back and delighting in this success, just again, bad timing, the housing bust occurred. A country that is thoughtful about this problem of timing, yeah? especially if the timing and collapse, especially adversely affects one group, would think about some kind of income support that's related to the shop, that's maybe even raced. Finally, the success, the improvement of an African-American person in the middle or at the bottom is so tied to the success of his brothers and sisters from other races, also at the bottom. Yeah? An increase in a minimum wage, for example, is a policy, I'm not arguing here for it, but I wanna give you an example. An increase in a minimum wage has the effect of dragging up wages at the bottom. But to the extent that African-Americans are disproportionately at the bottom, that race-neutral policy disproportionately benefits them. You see? In thinking about the racial earnings and wealth gap, I think it would behoove the country to think about the degree to which it is alarmed about gaps overall. Because the ideas based on such things would have the corollary effect of reducing the racial income gap. I think this is a point worth emphasizing. It's impossible to talk about closing economic gaps for Black Americans without addressing racial disparities in healthcare, which have been on full display amid the pandemic. To get more perspective on the state of those disparities, I turn to Dr. John Ayanian, Director of the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. How large are the health disparities between blacks and whites in the U.S. today, and how have these disparities evolved in recent decades? One of the most important indicators we study to understand racial disparities in health is life expectancy at birth, and that has actually improved over the past 40 to 50 years. In 1975, there was a seven-year gap in life expectancy between white and black men and a six-year gap between white and black women with black Americans having shorter life expectancy. That's still the case in more recent data, but those gaps have narrowed from seven years to four and a half years for men and from six years to three years for women. That's a combination of improvements in healthcare as well as improvements in civil rights and opportunities for economic advancement that have improved to some degree, but not enough to eliminate the disparities that have been present for decades and centuries within the United States. When it comes to a connection between the income gap and the healthcare gap, interestingly, Dr. Yanian sees the disparities in healthcare across income levels, though the gap narrows as you move up the income ladder. 
we see generally that African-Americans do have worse health outcomes across the income spectrum. Certainly some of the worst outcomes relate to lower levels of income on average for black Americans relative to whites. But we see even in middle and upper income categories, important health disparities with worse health outcomes for blacks. For example, when we look at infant mortality, certainly higher income white or black women who are pregnant have lower levels of infant mortality than those with lower incomes. But even at higher levels, black infants have higher levels of infant mortality than white infants. Some of this difference may relate to differences in wealth across income categories. We know from economic data that middle income and higher income white Americans generally have much higher levels of measured wealth in terms of home ownership and assets that enable them to achieve better health outcomes, even at the same levels of income as Black Americans. What's the best way to confront the health care gap? Dr. Yanian says there's convincing evidence that increasing access to high-quality health care is key to overcoming racial disparities in health outcomes. So broadly speaking, what's required to eliminate the racial health gap? First and foremost, it's important for all Americans to have access to affordable health insurance coverage and to the health care that they need and can obtain with that insurance coverage. Insurance coverage makes a large difference. For example, Massachusetts enacted state health reform in 2006 that included Medicaid expansion, subsidized private coverage for middle-income adults, and an individual mandate that required Massachusetts residents to have insurance coverage or pay a penalty on their state income taxes. That led to a substantial reduction in the rates of uninsurance in Massachusetts relative to other areas of New England in the same time period. And over several years, we found that it improved access to care and improved self-reported health, how people viewed their physical and mental health. And other colleagues at the Harvard School of Public Health found that mortality rates actually declined in Massachusetts after state health reform relative to other similar regions of the United States. So while those analyses didn't focus on racial disparities per se, we know that rates of uninsurance are higher in black Americans than white Americans. So by reducing gaps in insurance coverage, we are likely also reducing disparities in health outcomes. The Affordable Care Act that was passed in 2010 has narrowed some of the disparities in insurance coverage that we see in society and some of the racial disparities. For example, among African Americans, uninsured rates from 2010 to 2017 declined from about 27% to 16% and declined to a smaller degree among white Americans from 14% to 8.5%. So that has played an important role, but one of the most important gaps that we still face is that 14 states in the United States have not yet expanded Medicaid. Many of those states are concentrated in the South and with high concentrations of low-income Black adults who would benefit from coverage if their states expanded. And what that means is they're not receiving optimal care for chronic conditions such as high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and they're more likely to experience worse health outcomes because of those gaps in care. We also need a healthcare workforce that's more diverse and representative of society. Academic health systems and health professional schools, medical schools, nursing schools, and others across the country 
have an important role to play in ensuring that individuals from minority communities have full access to educational opportunities. And then we also need to be monitoring the quality of care that we provide to Americans from different racial and ethnic groups and set specific targets and develop programs to achieve those targets to care for people's health conditions equitably and in the highest quality fashion possible. Dr. Yanian says eliminating racial health disparities will require strong will from leaders of medical institutions and healthcare providers to make closing these disparities a top priority. But healthcare alone won't be sufficient. In his view, underlying social and environmental factors must also be addressed to make real progress toward racial healthcare equality. Is it possible even to close the healthcare gap if we don't address underlying social and environmental factors? Eliminating racial disparities in health requires leadership and will on the part of leaders of healthcare organizations and insurers to make the elimination of racial disparities a top priority. But healthcare can only go so far in reducing racial disparities in health that we see across the United States. It really requires broad policy and economic solutions to underlying racism and racial discrimination that generates many of the health disparities that we see when people seek health care. So it will require a combined approach of both improved medical care, both access to care and quality of care, as well as improved social policies and economic policies to create more equal opportunities for Americans regardless of their race. Certainly with society's recent focus on racial justice and systemic racism, we have a window of opportunity for healthcare organizations, for political leaders, for corporate leaders to dedicate renewed effort to reducing and eliminating racial disparities in health. And that will go a long way to overcoming systemic racism and achieving racial justice in many dimensions. Finally, we turn to Margaret Anadu, head of the firm's Urban Investment Group, to discuss the role of private capital in addressing these economic inequities. She argues private capital must play a critical role, given that it sits at the center of wealth creation, from the ability to go to college, to buy a home, or to build a business, and is necessary to help finance investment in minority communities. The role of private capital is a thousand percent critical. Just starting with the basic premise that the wealth of the average white family is 10x the wealth of the average black family. What are the reasons for that? Your ability to buy a home, your ability to create wealth through entrepreneurship, your ability to have a higher income over your lifetime because of your education, the dent into economic prosperity due to health disparity. So all of those big categories are contributing to that gap and that economic inequality. So then if we go deeper on those specific aspects, so the ability to own a home. There are a lot of factors in that, but a significant one that we can't ignore is mortgage lending. And who provides mortgages to Americans in this country? Primarily private institutions with private capital. I'll just take a second one, education. What determines whether you go to college or not? A lot of that is capital. So after you've exhausted whatever family savings you have, whatever federal student loans you're capable of getting, how do people fill the gap? They fill it through private lending, right? So again, another example where private capital has to be a critical piece in closing that gap. Yet 
another example. This healthcare, a big topic we're having around the country is about the appropriate distribution and connection to health services. And that also includes the provision of private capital in terms of how clinics and how hospitals are financed. So those are big categories that are both cyclical, right, causes and similarly impacts of the racial wealth gap and systemic oppression and racism where private capital is, if not the central player in the space, it's certainly one of them. Anadu emphasizes that, at least in her experience, these investments generally offer competitive risk-adjusted returns given the magnitude of underinvestment that's created pent-up demand, as well as opportunities for public-private risk sharing. The business case, I think, is quite straightforward. Underinvestment creates opportunity. We've seen this in the venture space and in many other spaces. Black founders are underinvested. Black women are a great example. Black women are starting businesses at the fastest rate relative to any other demographic group right now, and they're getting half a percent of venture capital. So there are returns there to be made. And on the real estate side, we have decades and decades of racist federal policies to dig out from. Harlem's a great example. Disproportionately, Black neighborhood, whole host of issues. When we started investing there and we did mixed income housing, mixed income condos, et cetera, we outperformed because there was such a pent-up demand for the type of quality assets that these communities had just been starved from. So I think the business case is about finding underinvested spaces that really lack that capital. You tend to outperform just because there is that pent-up demand. And there are ways to work together with government and partner on these investments to share the risk. So many of the investments that we've done, for example, in grocery stores or healthcare facilities around the country, they leverage really forward-thinking federal policies to invest in those spaces where we bore some risk, but they did as well. And so if you can lower the risk, which is part of the risk-adjusted return analysis, by working with public sector partners where you are achieving community and economic development goals that are in line with those policies. And that's another way to invest in these spaces and themes very profitably. What's required to see these investments on a scale sufficient to make real progress in closing racial economic gaps? Anadu's answer, more capital from larger players, more high capacity operators in these areas, and more policy at the federal, state, and local levels to incentivize both of those actions. But the key takeaway from all of our findings is that as much progress as any one policy solution can make, Overcoming the economic and social inequities facing Black Americans today will require a holistic approach from all areas of society, public and private. And coming together to achieve this goal is not only a moral imperative, but also essential for the health and vibrancy of our economy and our nation more generally. I'll leave it there for now. We wish you good health during this difficult time. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. 
Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.